Well, it is great to see a Providence family. If you are uh, here in our room here or in the Fellowship Hall prisms or, uh, or in the amphitheater, uh, or perhaps you're at home on this uh, beautiful spring morning. And, uh, but for all of you, we're really glad to, to uh, see you. It's always a joy to be able to worship uh, the Lord with you. And for all of you who are guests with us, welcome. I'm really glad that you've joined us as well. You know, when we do come and when we gather, uh, we uh, always do so with intent, and that is to worship Christ. He's the one who's, who uh, made us, uh, who formed us, who fashioned us, who, uh, who has died for us, who lived for us, and who rose from the dead for us. It's an amazing thing. And so we come week by week. Uh, and one thing we all have in common, God's word says, is that we've all been uh, made um, uh, folks who have received mercy. We're just uh, so grateful for the opportunity to sing to him and worship him. The second is uh, we want to come to love each other well. Uh, and, and that means to uh, pray for each other and to know each other and to help each other. And so, um, and so we are glad that you're here. But then the third thing is to open up God's word, which is his revelation to us of who he is, who we are, and how we're supposed to live in his world and to hear from him about those very things. And so if you have um, uh, one with you in your hand. Uh, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, if you do not, there's lots of Bibles in the chairs near you. And if you don't have one at home, you can take that home as a gift. Uh, we would love for you to have your own copy. Uh, but Luke 19 is a, um, um, is a, a fascinating uh, place uh, because what we're going to do over the next two weeks is look at two places in Luke uh, one is Palm Sunday and one is about Easter. And just look at the idea of, of what Christ has done. And that is that he has uh, made an amazing invitation to all of us. And that is that even though we live in a world full of pieces, it's broken down into pieces, is that he wants to give us peace. And some of you need peace this morning. Maybe your heart right now is tore up over something. You may look in the mirror this morning and, 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 and just something internally. It may be your marriage. It may be your family. It may be your children. It may be that you look into the world and you see the chaos literally throughout our whole country and maybe even in the whole world. And, uh, and, 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 and that stacks up within your heart like a heavy, heavy weight and you need peace. And I want you to know that peace can be found, found this morning in Jesus Christ. And so let's pray to him, okay? Father, we need your help as we open up your word. And as we even think about the realities of our world, the broken realities of our world, we call upon you and we ask for help. I pray, God, that you would sustain the heart, Lord, this morning that is, that is weary and that is anxious and that is depressed and that lacks understanding that wants so deeply to see you move in the world, I pray that you would first move in their heart. Move in my heart. I pray that you would speak through weakness and that you would give us joy as we read your word. Even a heavy passage about Jesus mourning and weeping and even sharing terms of peace with us. It's all heavy material and yet it's all really good news because you came and you loved us so much that you would die for us in order to give us peace. So God, would you help us to be receptive this morning? Or would you help us to, Lord, truly receive it with open arms and an open heart, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're like me, uh, you uh, look most mornings at the news just to see what happened when we were asleep. Uh, happened in the world. 
And it was true today. I actually thought about reading it, but there's too much on there that there's kids here. And it's just, it's such a mess of our world. You just look at the national news headlines and one after another, after another, there's just an affirmation that things are broken. Things are broken. Life is broken. Politics is broken. The world is broken. You and I know that things are broken. We see it all over the place. When we go to a funeral, when we go to a hospital, it's so crowded. When we see senseless violence, when we see people being mistreated, when we see people being entrusted with power and then abusing that power for selfish gain, even exploiting people, innocent people, young people. We see racial rivalries. We think that's not supposed to be like that. We see refugees literally scattered all over the world because of war within their own places, many of whom have been born in refugee camps. And we look at this and we think they don't even have a place they call home. We know it's not supposed to be like this. Every time you've ever been to a funeral, there's something instinctively that everyone there acknowledges. And that is though we are here for this person and we have hope in Christ, we know this was not the plan. Everybody there knows that this is not right. Something's wrong here. That we weren't, we weren't created to die, and yet we're all dying. We all look at this and we say, it's not supposed to be like this. We look at our broken lives. We look at our broken families, maybe even our, our broken marriages or our children. We look at the broken world. And oftentimes how we look at it is very similar as when somebody pours out a 5,000-piece puzzle upon the table. Right? We all agree that the world is in pieces, but what we do not agree on is how to reassemble all of these pieces. We start to look for functional saviors, right? things that can be like glue. They can take pieces and glue pieces together in order to make a whole. And so instinctively, we look for a leader. And it's only natural for us to have different ideas over who that leader should be. And so even in our country, right, where we have the opportunity to elect our own leaders, people that are going to help us put things back in order. And what happens? You get some people over here that says, this is the leader who has the capacity, the ideas that can actually put this thing back together. And then half the country over here says, no, it's not that leader, it's this leader. And so what happens? What happens is that even as we're trying to reassemble the pieces, we're creating more broken ones. We're more torn apart. This happens all over the world. And what you need to understand is that life was not created this way. This is not how God designed it from the beginning. And the book in your hand, if you have a Bible in it, actually tells of one amazing story. Now, there's lots of little snippet stories all over the place, but all collectively they tell us of one master story about Jesus Christ. And the story begins... The God who is good and self-existent, who's eternal, that he created a really good place for us to live. And then he created us where we could live in relationship with him, that where we could be with him forever. You see, like a child holding, like a little child holding his or her daddy's leg, God's nearness was supposed to be our peace. When a little child standing near dad, the strength of dad provides security. The presence provides peace. And this is how life was intended to be lived, that you and I would literally be living in such close relationship with Jesus Christ, with God Almighty, that his nearness would be our peace. And then the Bible tells us came the worst of days. The Bible tells us that thinking that we could chart a course that was better than the one that God laid out 
says that we sinned against God. We broke fellowship. In essence, we left daddy's leg. And in doing so, we gave away our peace. We gave away our security. We gave away our comfort. We, we, we traded his strength for, what, for our selfishness. And it's interesting that what happens is that when we do not have that kind of strength near us, we look for something else to be our strength. And oftentimes what that is is our own selfish desires. And that's why James chapter 4 verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the desires within your heart that are waging war against each other? He says that I want your shirt. This is verse 2. This is a paraphrase. He goes, I like that guy's shirt right there. But he's not going to give me a shirt. So I'm just going to kill him and take his shirt. This is, this, is the, this is the cause of the strife. And isn't that exactly what we read on every news station? Somebody wants some, something that someone else has. They won't give it to him. And so he says, I want it because that is my functional savior. If I could have that, I'll feel comfort. If I could have that, I'd feel peace. I would feel right. And you need to understand that God was deeply offended at all this. This is not a theory. This is not a hypothesis. This is not an idea. This was a person that we left. This is our creator that we walked away from. But even in his deep offense, the Bible tells us in the story of God is that he chose not to crush us in his offense, but he actually designed a master story to where he would send his only son, his only begotten son who would come to this earth and he would live a righteous life He would show us the Father's love for us. And then he would die on a cross for our sin, for my sin. That he would go into a grave for three days and then he would rise from the dead and prove to be the authority and the victor over evil and over death. And he would do all this in order to bring us back to, as it were, the Father's leg. The source of strength and peace and comfort. To be near God and to walk in a relationship with him. And our text here in Luke chapter 19, what it does is it airdrops us down directly into a part of the story that is, that is, um, uh, that's heavy. Okay, It's five days before Jesus Christ went to the cross. He has his face set to come into Jerusalem. This was not an accident. It wasn't a plan that went awry. It says that his disciples, after he told them, I'm going to show you this in a little bit. He, he tells them, this is why we're going there. And this is what's going to happen. And they said, well, this isn't a good idea. And he says, follow me. And it says that he sets his face to Jerusalem. He is the primary mover. He is fulfilling his promise. The air drops us down. And what it says is that as he comes into Jerusalem, he looks around at a world full of of pieces, broken down in pieces. And what he does is he proclaims peace. So let's read it together, starting in chapter 19, verse 30. He says to his own disciples, two of them, he says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now look what happened in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now on Palm Sunday, we read of the account where we come up with the words Palm Sunday, palm branches being laid on the ground. And what I want you to see here is this. I want you to see some things that are true about Jesus that took place all these many years ago. And what I want you to see is Jesus is continuing to do the same things today, even in our lives and in our world. So what are these things? The first thing is this, is that Jesus weeps over the lostness in the world. He weeps over the lostness in the world. He's not emotionally distant. He's not emotionally apathetic to the brokenness that's happening all over the world because people are so far from God. I want you to imagine the tension in Jesus' heart, maybe on his face as he rode into Jerusalem. I swear to see a mixture, almost like salt water and fresh water, sorrow and joy or pain and pleasure. He knows who he is. He knows who they are. Just imagine him thinking or maybe even saying to himself, I am the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And I have come from heaven, which is a place of perfect peace. And I am the king of this people. And I am the king of this city. But I will not bring peace today. And I will not be crowned today. There will be no coronation today. He looks out, he says he looked upon the city and he begins to weep. Now, there are a few pictures in the Bible that are as stunningly human as when the Son of God cries. Think about this for a second. The authority over all things, the creator of all things, the unrivaled power of the world. And he looks on people and there is such strain within his heart that the glands within his eyes begin to secrete so many tears that they fall out of his eyes. He wasn't confused. In fact, if you just think for a moment, like we sometimes we don't see things how we need to see them. And so we're not we don't appreciate them like we do. Look at this picture of a woman crying. It looks vulnerable, doesn't it? Shaken, unsettled, maybe sad, maybe helpless or hopeless. 
Sometimes what we do is we look at this verse and we just kind of skim over it. The fact that the son of God who created Jerusalem to point to himself, who created all of these people, who created every single part of the temple, literally as a flashing arrow that says, look at the Christ, look at the Christ. The one with unrivaled power in the entire world. And he expresses a picture that looks this vulnerable. But I want to encourage you not to attribute Jesus' tears either to panic or hopelessness. This was not a plan that went awry. You see, Jesus knew neither panic nor did he know helplessness. You see, what we find is the evidence in this passage prior to verse 41 is, is, is stunningly sovereign. The first thing that we see is that Jesus has absolute and complete knowledge over everything. In verse 30, he says, he sends two disciples and he says, I want you to go to this place and you're going to find, you will find, I know it's there. There will be a colt that's tied there. And the owner's probably not going to appreciate you just taking the colt. So when the owner asks you, what are you doing? Just say this, the Lord has need of it. And I know that in the owner's heart, that'll be sufficient. And that's precisely what takes place. He has perfect knowledge. He also has perfect integrity. You see, it was God himself who made a promise to us in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, about the Messiah when he came into Jerusalem to do his saving work. He says, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. And so in perfect integrity, not only did he know everything, he also knew what he promised. And he says, I am not going into Jerusalem this time without being on the back of a colt. He's in total control. We also know that he has complete power. We know this from verse, 30, uh, from, uh, verse, verse uh, 37. When it says that all the people that they gathered and they were laying down their coats and they were laying down the palm branches. And it says that, there were, that, that they were doing this because they had seen the mighty works of Christ. They had seen different miracles. They'd, some of them had seen walking on water. Some of them had seen calming a storm. By speaking to it. Some of them have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. These things were not invisible to people. They saw them. They, they knew he had power. And now unrivaled power had a tear in his eye. It's stunning. He also had complete authority. You see, this was no accident. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, we are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. You see, Jesus' tears They weren't because there was dust that was flying around. They weren't because he had dry eyes. It's because there was such strain within his heart when he saw the need of mankind that his humanity erupted, the gland erupted, and he began to tear up. You see, these were the tears that move a man towards need. I would define it as simply compassion. And that's why the very next words that come after this, he says, would that you... Only you. He's making an appeal with people. He, he cares about us. He cares about the lostness in the world. 
You see, he wept over the chasm that separated God and man. And he wept over a city that was broken down to pieces because of religious legalism and because of rivalry racially and ethnically and because of violence. I think he wept over the incredible peril because he saw the need of the people in Jerusalem. And I want you to know that I really do believe that Christ, he looks with same concern upon the lostness of the people of Raleigh. He cares deeply about people. He cares about the chasm. He's emotionally moved by the brokenness that he sees in the world, maybe even in your own heart. He's not aloof. He cares about you. He knows you. But that's not all that we learn here. Not only does he weep, it says here that Jesus mourns over the blindness of people. He mourns over the blindness of people. You guys have all seen something that someone else simply couldn't see. You raise your hand. You see that thing over there? Everyone looks and they can't see it, but you can see it. Sometimes I think it's simply wisdom at at times. We look at our kids and we say, now look, I've seen this before because I've lived this before. And I'm telling you out of wisdom that I want to tell you where this path is going. Now, you don't know exactly where the path is going, but you have seen people walk down this path and you see the dead end. So you speak to that future of your child and you and you say, this is where this is going to go. You can see what they can't see. This took place in my life uh, about 20, 25 years ago. I was in college. I was um, 44 now. Uh, actually, I was about 20 years old. And uh and I had a good friend, his name was Dwayne Miner, and Dwayne and I, we were, uh, it was on a Sunday afternoon, and Dwayne, Dwayne and I loved to do, do things uh, that were um, not sitting around. And so he says, hey, let's go, let's go, uh, let's go, let's go mountain climbing, let's go, um, there's, this, there's this hill, was, and, and the back of it was a hill, it was just like a grassy field, but on the other side, it was about a 40 foot, just rock face, okay? And, uh, and so I tell my dad, I said, hey, um, we're going to head over to the hill. And, and, uh, and he said, well, um, make sure you grab a rope. And, uh, and I thought about it. Dwayne thought about it. And then we just had another thought. And I said, how hard can it be? We don't need a rope. And so we walked and uh, hopped in the car and left without a rope. And so we, so we get there. And, and, um, and sure enough, I mean, it, was, it was dry. It was a beautiful day. And I, 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 I used to remember, I said, Dwayne, why don't you go first? And uh, and so Dwayne, Dwayne starts scaling this, this, uh, this, um, this rock face. It's about 40 yards, okay? Some of it's not straight up, but it certainly gets to a place, in, in particular the top, where it really, really is steep. Well, Dwayne gets up to where he's about literally about five feet from the very top, and he freezes. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm about 10 feet up, and I'm looking, and I'm like, keep going. And he's like, I can't go anymore. And suddenly... If you've ever seen this, his, his legs start shaking, right? And so now he's not holding on by his leg. He's only holding on by his fingertips. And so now it's just a matter of time. And I'm thinking, he's going to fall. And so what I do is I scale back down. I run around and I go all the way up the backside. I get to the very top. And right where he is at, God, years ago, had planted a tree, a little tree, literally right on the edge. And so I think... So I kind of look down, he's still there, and I'm like, all right, Dwayne, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to this tree, I'm going to swing my body over, right, and just grab onto me, and I'll pull us up. 
It sounded like a great plan. And at the time, and so I did, I held on to that tree and I dropped my body down and he starts grabbing and he starts crawling. Right. And we sort of get stuck for a little bit. And both of us think, man, wouldn't it be nice right now if we had a what? A rope. Now, my dad was able to look into the future because of wisdom. But Jesus was able to look into the future because of sovereign omniscience. He knew what was going to happen. And what he knew here, he says, is that judgment was coming. And there was two different forms of this judgment. The first is a historical form of judgment that he speaks of in verse 43 and 44. We're about 40 years after this moment in time, the Romans literally did come in. They set a barricade around Jerusalem. They surrounded it, and then they went in, and they literally toppled the temple. They pulled it down rock by rock by rock. But as in most prophecies, there's a historical, physical part, but there's also a spiritual part. And the spiritual part, I believe, is that Jesus was also able to look forward to the time when these unbelievers would die. And they would stand before him whom they had rejected as their sovereign judge between heaven and hell. And he mourned over their blindness. They couldn't see what he saw. And so he saw it. So so he calls out. He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. He says, you're oblivious to the fact that this is the moment in all of history that is the most pivotal thing that will ever happen in the world for humanity. And you don't see it happening at all. You're oblivious to the significance of who I am as the son of God. I am the only one capable of making the sacrifice. I think he thought, I believe also that you are absolutely oblivious that I am the only person in the world that has the power To bring peace to a world so full of pieces. He says, but you can't see these things. You know, you can go today where I was there 10 years ago. You can actually take a tour under Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You can walk around. You can see rocks that were actually placed under the rule of Solomon. Way, way, way down deep. There's one little section under all of the wall and under the Temple Mount, which is, which is, um, which is heavy, and, and yet it's, there's a sweetness to it because there's sincerity, and yet there's a tragedy to it. And you can go there today, and you'll see faithful Jewish people praying underneath what they believed was the temple. And what they're praying for is that God would be so merciful as to send the Messiah. They don't see. They don't know that he's come. Even when he was standing right in front of them, they did not know. And so you see this mourning in Christ over the spiritual blindness of the world. He speaks to this in Luke chapter 12 when he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and it happens. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You see, sadly, very little has changed in the world 
Today, there's this vast crowd of educated people that can interpret all kinds of things from wind and waves to electricity and mental health, physical health, genetic variations, and a million other creative things that point to Jesus Christ. And yet they're absolutely oblivious to who Jesus is. They're oblivious to his significance in the world, and they're oblivious to their peril. They simply don't see. And what you need to understand, Providence, is this, is that Jesus Christ cares so deeply, even over that blindness, that he mourns. He could be mourning for the loss that he would endure, but in this moment, he's mourning because people simply can't see what's happening. This should create in every one of us who know Christ a deep sensitivity to those apart from Christ. They just can't see. We shouldn't hate them for it. We shouldn't ridicule them for it. For They can't see. And this should stir within our heart the similar compassion and mercy and sacrifice that we see from Jesus. That we care about those who simply cannot see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to the Father except through him. Well, there's one other thing I want you to, to uh, see. And that is that Jesus issues terms of peace. He issues terms of peace. He says this, watch this. He says, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. You know, there's only one other time and place that Luke uses this phrase, the things that make for peace. It's in Luke chapter 14. I want you to see it. Luke 14, 31 and 32. This is what it says. It says, what king going to encounter another king in war? will not sit down first and take counsel whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and asks terms of peace. That is the exact same phrase that Luke uses in chapter 19 when he says the things that make for peace. It can also be translated, oh, that you knew the terms for peace. So the picture here is that Jesus, as he approaches Jerusalem, he is the rightful king with 20,000 soldiers. And there's a resistant people inside the city with 10,000 soldiers. He could come in and waylay all of them, but instead what he does is he sends. He sends one, his son. He comes into the city and he says, oh, that you knew the terms of peace. I have unrivaled power and authority, but I come. I want to be at peace. But will only be at peace on my terms. You've probably heard someone say, I got an agreement with God. It is his terms and there are no other. There are no other. So we've got to ask the question, well, what are his terms? What are these terms? What we find in this amazing biblical story is Jesus' terms are these. First, we must lay down our arms. You say, well, what arms are you talking about? I don't have a gun or a knife that's put up against Jesus Christ. I'm not in a war with him. Actually, what he says is this. He goes, the, the arms that I'm talking about Or self-sufficiency that would say, I am enough. Or self-righteousness that says, I've done enough. He says, the first thing you must repent of is you thinking that you can earn your way 
to this king. You can't. You must not believe that you can earn your way to God. He says the second thing you must do is you must actually believe, admit your need and then lean on Jesus' accomplishments to believe upon him, to believe who he is and to believe what he's done. And then third is to swear your unashamed allegiance to a new king in your life. Jesus said on multiple occasions, if you disown me before men, I will disown you before my father in heaven. But if you acknowledge me before men, then I too will acknowledge you before my father in heaven. Unashamed allegiance to a new king. I realize that Jesus in many parts of our own culture and country is not the coolest thing in the world. And being associated with him for many people causes shame. Providence, listen to me. There's a million things in this world for which we should feel shame, but being associated with Jesus Christ is not one of them. He is the Son of God, your creator and sustainer and savior. Romans chapter 9 verse 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so, Providence, a few thoughts. First, if you don't know Christ, the application for you today is very, very simple, and it's this. Let's trust Christ as Savior. Would you trust him as Savior? Would you agree to his terms today? You see, this is not a history lesson about the last days of a dead historical figure. Jesus did live a life. He did live a life of righteousness. He did die on a cross, but he also rose from the dead. And now he is the living Lord of heaven and earth and the judge of all mankind. And he's eager today for you to agree to his terms of peace. He sees your future. He sees the peril that you are in if you are apart from him. So would you today approve of his terms? Today, would you acknowledge the mercy? There are terms. And would you unashamedly declare him as Lord? I realize that many of you in this room have already trusted Christ. And if that's the case, then there is nothing that you would like more than to see the people in the room who have never trusted Christ to be able to do that. And so we as a church family want to give you an opportunity right now. So I want to ask you to bow your heads and let's pray together. And for those of you who know Christ, I want to encourage you simply to pray for those in the room that they would have the courage to respond to faith to the faith that they already have in calling out to you as Lord. And if you're here today and you have never trusted Christ, and peace is not part of your heart, then I want to give you the opportunity to write now. You can pray, not to me, but to him. And you can say something like this. Father in heaven, I acknowledge that I am not at peace. And I have been looking and I cannot find peace on my own. But I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to this earth. I believe that he lived a righteous life. I believe that he died on a cross for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I ask you now to save me. I unashamedly confess you as my King and Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. Now listen, if you just prayed to receive Christ, there is nothing that we as a church family would love to do more than to celebrate with you. And one way that you can help us do that, on the little snapshot as you walked in, there's a little tear-off. There's not necessarily a blank you can check, but if you trusted Christ, would you put your name on that, maybe a phone number, and just say, I trusted Christ, and I would love the opportunity to talk with you this week about that. The second thing, though, is for those of us who are believers, and it's simply this, let's rest in Jesus' peace even as we wrestle with our world. Providence, I know this place is broken. I know things are broken. But there really can be an opportunity for us as we stand close to Jesus, as we stand close to his strength, to feel a deep inner peace and yet at the same time wrestle and cry over the pain that we see in the world. You see, tears and faith These two things are friends. See, tears move us to the need and peace allows us to impart hope when we get there. And so if your heart is broken today, I'd simply urge you to lean on Christ. He's strong enough to hold you up. And the last thing that we get to do is have an opportunity to commission. And this is the last part is is simply this, is let's take Jesus' terms of peace to the world. Providence, he really has saved us. He's commissioned us with the terms of peace to go out. And so let's look for opportunities to share the good news. And let's keep practicing in our life groups, sharing this good news with others so that we feel more confident in sharing it outside of the walls. And let's continue to celebrate the the fact that God has given us a task that's worth the precious limited number of our days, the privilege of testifying to the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we have 18 of these these just... uh, Let's say that again. We have 18 of these this year, mission teams. And so, Trey, why don't you come on up? Uh, This is an opportunity for us as a church family to do just what we believe God's calling us to do, and that is to pray and commission mission teams that will go. You see on the screen um, here in a moment a map. Uh, You can see where they're going uh, as well as the, the dates and as well as each of those names. And it may be good for you maybe even just to write one of these names down on your snapshot right there. And as they leave next Saturday, that you'd have the opportunity to be praying for them. Okay? And this amazing opportunity. Uh, they're in Guatemala. It's a malnourished place, significantly malnourished. And so they have an opportunity to actually work in centers and to work with the church and to work with lots and lots of children. But what our hope in going is simply this, is that they would have the privilege to be able to talk about Jesus and to tell people the terms of peace that God's made available to us as well as to them. And so what we find in the New Testament is that as teams went out, as part of the family, is that the, all of the rest of the family, that they would gather and they would lay hands on them and they would pray. And why they would lay hands on them, why they would touch them physically, is what they were saying is that we, we know you're a part of us and we're going to be praying for you and we're sending you and we can't wait to hear what happens when you get back. And so um, one thing that we do here um, often is just symbolically, which I know there's a lot of people in other rooms, and so it may be a little bit odd, but just embrace the awkwardness. And, and, uh, but to um, actually raise your hand up as if it's being placed and laid on one of their shoulders, and let's pray for them now, okay? Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace in each of these individuals' lives. Thank you for the grace that you have poured out to all of us in Christ. Not only have you saved us and forgiven us, but you have commissioned us to take the good news and the terms of peace to others so that they too can be forgiven of their sin. And so I pray for this team as they go. Lord, we send them as part of ourself. We ask that you would protect them, that you would provide for them. 
We ask that you would give them great unity as a team. We ask, God, that you would coordinate their gifts and their interests so that they could be, Lord, a really strong team. And in doing so, we pray, God, that the gospel would go out in power. We pray that the people, as they interact with our team, with our family, we pray, Father, that they would sense a tangible expression. They would see a tangible expression of your love for them as they're loved by us. And so, God, we pray that as they go, that you would meet people, that you would help us to share the gospel, that you would help us to pray, that you would help us to have great compassion. But God, we also pray that you would do the miracle and that there would be people that would come to faith in Jesus Christ next week as a result of them going. And so we look to you in faith. We love you and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.